This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Kia ora and welcome to the Pet Podcast. Pet is a dark and humorous short story collection that explores our relationships with children, lovers and other animals. The stories in this collection were written by Catherine Van Beek. In episode one, Emotional Support Animal, a short domestic flight descends into chaos. Read by Melanie Kerr. This podcast contains strong language. Please use discretion. She bites me when she's stressed. My hands are patterned with punctures, but I know how to calm her down now. Grip the back of her neck, wait until her breathing slows, then rub her behind the ears. She's my emotional support animal, but I'm her emotional support animal too, in a way. It's the first time I've flown with her. My therapist wouldn't give me a certificate, so I brought one online. You can get anything you want online. That's how I got Tania. I don't declare her at check-in because I don't see the point. To be honest, I don't think they'll even know she's here. I don't think they need to know, but I've got the certificate in my wallet as backup in case I'm questioned. ESAs are very common overseas, but we're a little behind. I'm an early adopter. In the future, they'll do a news story on me and Tania. They'll say, oh, you were so brave, even though the authorities of the day were against you. And I'll say, yes, things were so backward then. But when you do what you think is right, there are only ever positive consequences. It's like paying the optional carbon offset on my ticket. There's a small negative impact on my bank balance. But overall, the consequences are positive because they plant more trees. Do I think most other people pay the carbon offset? No, I do not. But if I didn't stump up, I'd feel guilty about all this flying. I'm flying much more than I thought I'd have to, but it's not my fault the clinic's in a different city. I feel bad when Tanya goes through the security scanning machine in my handbag, but really, what choice do I have? It's uncomfortable for both of us, but it only lasts a few minutes. I tied Tania's feet to a piece of driftwood so she'd look taxidermied and I gave her some of my midazolam and packed her down tightly under my sweater so she'd stay still. My handbag comes out of the machine and down the conveyor belt without incident and I pick it up and walk briskly to the disabled toilet cubicle. I open my handbag, run my fingers under the tap and rub water on Tania's face. She tries to bite me when she comes to but I was expecting that. I put my hands around the back of her head and hold firmly until she stops fighting. I'll be your emotional support animal, I whisper. I sit down in the departure lounge. My bag wriggles a bit and I shift on my seat so it looks like it's me that's wriggling. There are lots of sporty looking people here. They must be on their way to some kind of tournament. Sporty looking guys tend to go for sporty looking girls. That's just how things work. There are lots of sporty-looking people in this country, but I'm not one of them. I've been searching for a quiet and serious kind of guy, but the best one I know flew to Vietnam to marry a girl he'd found on the internet. They'd never met before, but now they live together. He brought her to a work function. They seemed happy. There's a man drought in this country, and no one's doing anything about it. There's a mandrout for Tania too, contained in my handbag, but it would be irresponsible to allow her to breed. It's irresponsible to allow humans to breed too. We're always going on about how we have to kill all the possums and cats, but who bought them here and made them wild? 
and who tramples acre after acre to make more homes where more people can produce more children who'll just make even more mess. Everyone thinks their baby is the one who will save the world, but they're better off trying to change things themselves. Our flight number is called and we all file onto the plane. I don't need much luggage for these trips. Previously, I took one small handbag with my wallet, keys, phone, pen, notebook, midazolam and pepper spray. I prefer to have a taser, but they're not allowed on planes. Neither is pepper spray, but mine's in a little case that looks like a perfume atomizer, and it gets through security every time. Today I've got one large handbag containing the aforementioned items, plus my sweater, the driftwood and tarnia. I'm seated between a man and a woman. It's hard to tell if they're large or the seats are small. The man's legs are so long that the only way he can fit in his seat is by man-spreading, with his thighs out on 45-degree angles. That's what you get when you fly Jetstar. But when you take as many flights as I do, you can't be flying Air New Zealand all the time. A middle-aged man with a Slazenger jacket and an ex-army strut marches past, followed by 16 burly high school girls in track pants. They jostle and joke as they make their way to their seats at the back of the plane. Warlike instincts. That's what I think about people like that. They've got warlike instincts and it's better for everyone if they have sport for an outlet. Otherwise they'd be out on the streets killing things. The plane taxis down the runway and I try to stroke Tania through the bag as we take off. I'm torn between wanting to comfort her and not wanting to give the game away. I wonder if the change in air pressure will make her ears sore. I feel bad for her, but is what I'm doing any worse than taking a baby on a plane? And that's considered perfectly socially acceptable. When I have a baby, it will not travel until it's at least 12 years old. When I have a baby, I'll probably have to rehome Tania. But the baby will become my emotional support animal, and I'll be hers. I hope it's a her. You're not allowed to choose the gender in this country. Perhaps they're worried that everyone would choose girls and make the man drought even worse. But that seems unlikely, because they don't seem to be doing anything else about the drought. What they need to do is give men extra immigration points if they're single and over 5 foot 10. There are millions of single men in China and some of them must be tall. But of course solving the man drought problem would lead to a population explosion and I'm opposed to that on environmental grounds. Perhaps the drought has been intentionally manipulated for that very reason. If that's the case, I wish they'd done it the other way round. It would be nice to be batting off loads of surplus men instead of living this tumbleweeds life. The men that are available aren't always so nice either. They know they're in hot demand so they treat you like you're kind of disposable. Perhaps that's why I've gone eco. I just started empathising too much with single-use items. Now I'm in a satisfying long-term relationship with my moon cup. I'd like to unzip my bag a little so Tania can get some air, but when you give Tania a millimetre, she tends to take a mile. She's cunning like that. The people beside me are scrolling through their phones, and I don't think they'd notice if her little nose popped out the top of the bag, but you never know. Different people notice different sorts of things. I personally wouldn't notice a nose peeking out the top of someone's bag, but someone else would. I'd like to reach in and get my midazolam, but it's too risky. Instead, I focus on Tania's warm, beating heart. I can't feel her breathing through the bag, but just knowing she's in there calms me slightly. 
It's selfish to fly to a clinic in a different city to try and get impregnated with donor sperm. It really is. There's the carbon, the hormones that I have to take, that I pee back out into the water system, the parental leave, the fact that the kid won't have a real dad. On the other hand, that's society, isn't it? It's what I want, and is it really any worse than what anyone else wants? At least I only want one kid. I know people with six. Six, they should be locked up. These endless appointments are like bad dates. The build-up, the countdown, the excitement of the meeting, and then the slow fizzle of hope when you realise the chemistry was wrong. If today's treatment doesn't work, I'll be eligible for taxpayer-funded IVF. That means even more hormones and even more flights. Intellectually, I know we're brainwashed into believing that having a family will complete us, but you can't escape society. Not if you want to live comfortably. A flight attendant comes around to ask if we'd like to buy any food. The man next to me says, a sandwich, without specifying the ingredients. Clearly a meat eater. Really, people who take flights shouldn't eat meat. Of course I have to, because I'm on the optimum fertility diet. I have to eat lean beef five times a week. I'm also supposed to eat salmon twice a week, but salmon's filled with plastic, so I take an omega-3 supplement instead, along with my pregnancy multivitamin and the powder my naturopath recommended. I go to the gym twice a week, I do yoga twice a week, and I meditate every single day. All the hormones I'm taking are making me as sleek and fleshy as a dolphin. My hair's never been so glossy. I'm probably the healthiest person on this plane. The flight attendant leans over to pass the man his sandwich, and the tumult in my handbag tells me that Tania can smell it. What is wrong with people these days? Can't they sit through an hour-long flight without ordering something wrapped in plastic? The man opens his sandwich and starts eating. My bag keeps on wriggling and wriggling, so I press down on it gently, then a bit harder. The wriggling stops. I can't say the fertility hormones have done much for my state of mind. Added to the stress is having to do everything during work hours. For the past year, all my annual leave has been taken up with appointments. In the old days, people made babies at convenient times like evenings and weekends. Now everything's done in business hours, even artificial sex. For all I know, the man next to me could be my donor. He could be on his way to the clinic to leave his next deposit. I size him up. Is he the type of person I'd want to take genetic material from? I've already ascertained that he's disorganised and not up to the play with environmental issues. He's obviously not rich and successful or he wouldn't be flying Jetstar. I pretend to look out the window so I can see him more clearly. His face looks okay. Not handsome and with that sandpapery, not young but not old skin that I recognise from the mirror. He looks nice enough. I study him with more affection. He pokes the last piece of sandwich into his mouth, chews, chokes and coughs so much that a bit of bread flies back out of his mouth into his hands. He pops the white mush back into his mouth, eats it and runs his fingers through his hair. I feel that familiar tight feeling the rising heat through my body, the brain popping lightness, but I know what to do. I simply need to stand up, lock myself in the toilet at the back of the plane, vomit once, splash my face with water and spend the next 10 minutes breathing deeply no matter who bangs on the door. And this time it will be easier because this time I've got Tania. I stroke my handbag but it hasn't wriggled for a while. 
I hoisted over my shoulder, pushed past the woman on my right and walked briskly to the back of the plane. A flight attendant with a blonde bun and an orange jacket sees me coming and smiles nervously. Perhaps she remembers me from last time. Last time someone with food poisoning needed the toilet and they made me get out. I had to have a panic attack down the back with a flight crew. They gave me a paper bag to blow into but the situation wasn't ideal. As I near the toilet I can see it's engaged. Get out, I whisper psychically to the person in the cubicle. Get out, I just need to get in there and vomit and splash my face and unzip my bag and check that Tani is okay and bury my face in her sweet musky fur. That's all I need to do, that's all I need to do and then we will all be okay. Get out, get out, get out of the fucking toilet, you selfish piece of shit. I must be whimpering because the flight attendant takes my arm. She stares me behind the curtain, out of view of the other passengers. You're not a big fan of flying, are you? She says with a smile. She holds a paper bag up with her spare hand. Just breathe into this, just breathe. But I can't breathe. I haven't felt my handbag move since I pressed down on it. And I need to know that Tani is okay. I bat the flight attendant's hand away and open the zip on my handbag a fraction. Nothing. During our practice runs, Tania always poked her nose out the second she had the opportunity. I open the zip a little more, then a little more. I can't even see her. She must still be buried beneath my jumper. Oh God, what have I done? I move my jumper gently to the side. There's a flash of fur and teeth and Tania's gone, scattering the contents of my handbag in her wake. What the fuck, yells the flight attendant, her professionalism forgotten. I turn to see Tania struggling to run down the aisle. She's not moving as quickly as usual, but it's surprising how fast she can go with her legs tied to the driftwood. The people in the back few aisles start screaming and shouting, which is stupid, because then the people in the front aisles start turning around and screaming too, and they're freaking Tania out. I leap forward and rugby tackle her, the soft shell of my body protecting her from the commotion. Don't worry, I murmur. I'll be your emotional support animal. Out of the corner of my eye, I see black heels, sheer stockings, and the cuff of an orange sleeve as someone bends down beside me. It's all right, she says. Just get up slowly and we'll contain it in your bag until we land. I turn my head to see the flight attendant holding my handbag open as wide as her smile. It's all right, she says. Easy does it. Keep a firm hold and lower it gently in. The other passengers have their phones out filming. Don't worry about them, she says, signalling to them with her eyes to turn their fucking phones off. That's right, back in the bag. It's a bloody ferret, yells Slazenger Jacket Man. The sporty teens around him shudder. I'm scared of Mustard's coach, says one. The flight attendant ignores them all. Zip it up, right up to the top, she says. Now give your handbag a nice big hug. That's it, and come with me. The pilot comes on the intercom to tell us to prepare for landing. I follow the flight attendant towards the back of the plane, towards a Slazenger jacket man, and my handbag starts to squirm. Not just a little bit, but a lot. Tania is totally over this flight and I don't blame her. I slow down and walk as carefully as I can. The handbag writhes in my arms and I can barely hold on to it. It bursts into the air and a sporty teen squeals. I catch the handbag briefly before it flings itself from my hands. It lands on the floor and shuffles slowly down the aisle towards the teen. I reach towards it and the girl shrieks, She's letting it out! I freeze. The flight attendant turns and stares at me, her smile gone. The other passengers mutter and hiss and straighten their backs. 
Beyond my lurching handbag, I see my midazolam and my pepper spray. They're under the seat, across the aisle from Slazenger Jacket Man. He sees the items at the same time I do. He looks at me. I know he knows what's in the canister. We both reach for it, but he grabs it first, whips off the sparkly lid and sprays me between the eyes. Disoriented by burning pain, I trip and fall with full force on my handbag. The flight attendant lets me have her seat at the back of the plane. She covers me in my handbag with a blanket and does the seatbelt up over top. She moves my hands out to where she can see them, on top of my bag bump, as though I'm a proud pregnant lady. She holds a cooling gel pack over my eyes and speaks to me in a soothing voice. I can't hear what she's saying because my head is on fire, snot and tears fall uncontrollably from my face onto the blanket. When the plane lands, the security guards and the biosecurity officer come on board to greet me. But they needn't have bothered. The wriggling in my handbag has already stopped. The Pet Podcast was written by Catherine Van Beek and produced at ORFM, Autopoti Dunedin. Music is by Jolin Mulholland. The intros and outros are read by me, Tina Turntables. Thank you to Creative New Zealand and New Zealand On Air for making this podcast possible. You can listen again and find further episodes of Pet at ORFM. That's oar.org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.